Good morning. We're going to be reading from Acts 8, verses 9 through 25, and that's in page number 916 in your pew Bible. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somewhat great. They all paid attention to him from the greatest to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God and is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of, of uh, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to them, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let us pray. Gracious God in heaven, we come to you this morning and thanking you for this opportunity to to be in your house. We pray, Lord, that you will be with our pastor as he delivers his message, that he will open our hearts to your word. We ask you to forgive us of our sins and be with us as we celebrate this day of Mother's Day. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. We'll continue our study this morning in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Thank you, Bill, for reading for us this morning. I had the privilege of being raised in a godly Christian home. Uh, Father and mother who had come to faith in Christ uh, earlier in their life. My mom in college was saved from Roman Catholicism and endured some strong opposition to her newfound faith from her family at that time. Uh, my father was saved uh, earlier in his life as he was also raised in a Christian home. 
Uh, I don't have uh, bad memories of my childhood in any way, shape, or form, but I have a horrible memory, so I can't remember much of my childhood. Uh, But when I was five, I do remember very clearly uh, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I can't tell you who told me the gospel beforehand, though my parents could tell you that they talked to me about Christ. I can't tell you where I heard it, although they can tell you that I had been in little children's clubs, much like we have on Thursday afternoon, where I have been told of Christ. I was raised in a church where Christ was preached, but I don't remember any of that. But I do remember clearly waking up in the middle of the night, I could tell you the entire room, and what was going on uh, in the pitch black, which was nothing other than my soul disturbed greatly, knowing that if I died at that moment, hell awaited me, and I did not have Christ. How does a five-year-old comprehend these things? I don't know, but I'm not making it up. And I rolled onto my knees, and I, and I asked for Christ to save me. And the fruit of that has been borne out over now uh, 31 years, almost. How do you explain that? How do you explain a man on the cross... Uh, Moments before, maybe hours before his death, being saved by Christ as we looked at over Easter. How, how do we explain some of you who didn't come to faith in Christ and, until the high school, college, early adult, late adult years? Uh, how, do, how do we explain a, a man who pastored a church in Austin, uh, took the church millions of dollars into debt, Uh, was uh, abused numerous ways of being a pastor. And upon his deathbed, repented of his sin and trusted Christ. You know, how how do we explain someone who doesn't speak English coming to Christ? How does the Chinese explain someone that doesn't speak Chinese coming to Christ? how, How do we do these things? How do we explain someone who was raised in a godly Christian home wasn't exposed to much of the hideous sin of our world coming to Christ and yet how can we explain those who weren't raised in a godly Christian home and exposed to all the hideous sins of the world and then coming to Christ? How do we explain a man who who holds tightly to his Muslim beliefs or Roman Catholicism or Jehovah's Witness or whatever else, New Age philosophies, repenting of a sin and coming to Christ? Well, the answer is clear from our text this morning. And that is the power of Christ has the ability to save and save to the uttermost, irregardless of one's age, of one's nationality, of one's beliefs, of one's experiences. The power of Christ to save is full and complete and nothing can hinder its saving power. We've talked repeatedly as we've studied this book how the gospel goes forward, it advances, and then there's opposition. And that opposition has culminated thus far with the death of the stone, of Stephen. And yet we see what happens. The stoning of Stephen actually causes a resurgence and uh, the spread of the gospel goes from Jerusalem. Now we're finding it in Samaria. And the The character, if you will, in our story this morning, or as the text has taken us, is this man, Philip. Philip is now down in Samaria. He is preaching the good news of the gospel. Many are coming to faith. Many are believing. There is much joy in that city, as you see in verse 8. And like we've had before, here comes opposition. This in the form of a man, not as a persecutor, as Paul 
is, or currently Saul is, but in the form of his sorcery, in the form of his false religion, if you will, in the form of his power of sway over people, in the form of his uh, attention, getting the name, this man is the power of God that is called great. We have our passage and just for, if you're taking notes, it's uh, divided fairly simply. If you're uh, noticing, as we read this morning, the now, the word now shifts the scenes. And so you'll see in verse 13 and 14, there's a shift in the scene. Also in verse 18, there's another shift in the scene. And finally in verse 25, there's a shift in the scene. Let's just take that first section. This is verse 9 through 13. I've entitled this first point, A New Frontier. A new frontier. The new frontier is Samaria. Uh, the early church, Christian church is obeying Christ. They're taking it from Jerusalem to Samaria. And here it is. The gospel has reached Samaria. Philip is down there. He has been preaching the good news. And we find that he encounters this man named Simon. Pardon me. Still recovering from a cold. This man's name is Simon, and I, I think it's helpful for us to just understand the historical character of this man. Um, I've noted a few things. I've just jotted down. One, he is practicing magic or sorcery. Uh, there is the reality of demonic forces. This is nothing to be afraid of, but there is a reality of demonic forces. Uh, and this man is practicing some sort of magic and sorcery. And it doesn't tell us what he's doing other than to say that there is an awe about it. He is amazing the people. So he's practicing some sort of sorcery magic thing. He's amazing the people. The people are amazed by him. And there's this self-described greatness. You'll see that in verse 9. Saying that he himself was somebody great. I mean, we were reading the text in 2019. And you're reading the text and it's almost laughable that people are following this man. Uh, how many of us would follow someone who describes themselves as great? Well, his, history bears it out. Uh, most. And here they are, following this man. Uh, and, 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 the, and the author here of Acts, Luke, is writing it in such a way to help us understand uh, that this is what the gospel is going up against. Uh, it is going up against those who have held to this sorcery, have held to this falsehood, have held to this false man... And all his pride and pomp for, for, uh, for some time. They're astonished by him. They're amazed by him. They, they, they'd even given him a nickname. And yet what happens? What do we see? The power of Christ is greater still. Is it not true of all unbelievers, all of us before Christ, that we would attribute to Satan... Uh, to sinful idols, to evil, the worship and honor that should be to God alone. That's what they're saying. This man is the power of God that is called great. They're attributing to all his evil worship that should be to God alone. And, 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 and all of those not in Christ do the same thing. Uh, they take the glory of creation and they, they worship it, not unto God, but unto to evil. And we would all continue to do the same thing and still be doing the same thing if we're not the greater power of Christ in bringing light into our dark hearts. 
He had amazed them with his magic in verse 11. Uh, people have always held a fascination uh, with the supernatural. I read a lengthy article just a few weeks ago on missions. Uh, this article was written by someone uh, that's from overseas, India, and he's writing from now in the U.S. And he was just, he was articulating how the Western church, us, is so fascinated by the supernatural. Uh, to the point that the false church overseas, pick a spot, knows that, and so when missionaries go over there or when short-term mission trips go over there, what, what do they tell them about? They tell them about what this man saw a vision. And, uh, this man, something appeared to this person. Could those things be real? Of course they could be real. But what's more amazing? Some sort of vision? Or people's hearts being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? So we're, we're missing what is the real supernatural but we've always been fascinated by it. We must be careful of that. Oftentimes even we, we look for people to, to, to exemplify some sort of a supernatural thing. Well, we're enamored in, in the church with charismatic gifts. As, as if they are the authentication of, of real saving faith. Are they? Is not Christ in his work that which saves? What else do we need to know? But notice what Philip does here. This is the, the shift in the scene, if you will, verse 12. Oh, Philip, in the midst of all of this falsehood, all of this amazement, he simply preaches the good news. That's what it says. As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, what happens? Well, the amazement shifts. And it doesn't say Philip uh, juggled five more balls than the previous show did. You know, it it doesn't say he he waved his wand over the hat and more rabbits came out than the previous guy did. Uh, He doesn't say he he, he did something that was more amazing. No, he just preached Christ. You know, I, I think it's interesting that as we study the book of Acts, as we look at the early church, as we think about what the early church looked like, what was in the early church, what was not, it, you can't find much that takes place in the early church service. That's, that's, it, that's helpful for what we do today. You can't build an argument uh, from the book of Acts on, on the type of music that we should have in the early church service. Uh, you certainly can't build an argument for, a, for what the liturgical structure should look like. There's, there's no indication of shapes of buildings. But what you can see clearly is the central focus is the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. So why is it that our Western church and church attendees seem to put so much thought and concern into all the other trappings, often to the neglect of the preaching or preaching of the gospel, or at least if it's there, it's a diluted preaching. Brothers and sisters, I don't, I don't know why you come to this church. I trust and hope it's for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like the pews maybe as much as you do. I like the music as much, if not more, than you do. But the central focus of any worship has got to be the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing else that's going to save in this, in this service. You, you can move me to tears by pre- singing the power of the cross. You got me this morning. It's not going to save me. You, you, you can pray for me during the service. It won't save me. 
Christ saves. And the only way we can know that is by the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is what we should always guard and that is what even we'll see here in a moment. The the apostles, specifically Peter and John, guard. What is being taught? Uh, The new convert needs to hear Christ. Because if they don't know Christ, they, they will not be equipped and guarded against all the ickiness that will come upon them. The, the, the bends and the twist of true doctrine and subtle shifts. They need to know clearly Christ. They don't need a PhD in it. But just the regular diet of the preaching of the word of God will equip the, or the, the new believer to know what they need to know. And what we certainly see here is that Simon and his teaching, his opposition to the gospel, the the difficulty of of long-held beliefs, especially these long-held beliefs that are accompanied by some subjective awe of of the, the miraculous things he's been doing, it certainly points to the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. It's more powerful than sorcery, and it's certainly more powerful than the influencers of men. We praise the Lord for that. Let's look at the teasing out even more of this man, Simon. Let's look at number two in our study this morning. This is verse 14 to 25, a false convert. I'll just say by way of transition that many believed Christ. Many were baptized. Simon himself believed. He was being He was baptized and he follows Philip. And, and he's amazed, not now at the sorcery, but at the signs and great miracles that Philip was performing. All of that is setting up what we find in verse 14 through 25, which I've entitled this second point, a false convert. Now I'm playing my hand a bit. Uh, there are those who believe that Philip, uh, that, excuse me, that Simon is a true convert, and others believe he was a false. I hold to the latter. But you be the judge as you study the scriptures this morning. It's not clear in the text. But notice what's teased out for us. The apostles that are back in Jerusalem hear that Samaria has received the word of God, uh, have heard of what Philip's doing down there, and and by way of uh, help, by way of strengthening the early church, they send Peter and John down to be with them and to pray with them. That they might receive the Holy Spirit, verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now let me just say this, verse 16, as one commentator puts it, is perhaps the most extraordinary statement in the book of Acts. So let's take a look. What is verse 16? Well, it's a difficult text. Uh, Up until this point, baptism and reception of the Spirit... Uh, has happened, uh, meaning that those who were saved received the Spirit and they were baptized. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 38. And yet here it seems that you have some new converts that have not received the Holy Spirit. What do we do with that? How can I stand before you and say that if you are saved in Jesus Christ this morning, the fullness of the Holy Spirit indwells you? You get the Holy Spirit. It seems as if there's some who didn't here. 
Well, you have this laying on of hands. What does that mean? Well, it's, it seems to be a rare circumstance. In chapter 19, verse 6, uh, the Apostle Paul lays hands. But that seems to be a rare situation in chapter 19 where there has to be the laying on of hands in order to receive the Spirit. Chapter 10 of Acts, verse 44 through 48, the Holy Spirit falls on the people without the laying on of hands, and yet under the preaching of the word and before baptism. Here, it's after baptism. Paul receives the Spirit in chapter 9, but the apostles aren't present. Here they are present. Do they have to be present? Is this some sort of second reception of the Spirit? Meaning they, they have him in saving grace and justification and adoption and regeneration, but they haven't had the full gifting of the Spirit. Well, no, verse 16 tells us that they'd not received the Holy Spirit. So that's out. The Ethiopian, which we'll see here next week in verse 26 and following of chapter 8, seems to have the Holy Spirit in conjunction with baptism, being the sign of being saved, and yet Philip is not present because the Spirit carries him away immediately following the Ethiopian's baptism. So what do we make of this verse 16? Do some of you need to be prayed for in order to receive the Holy Spirit? That's the question, is it not? I don't think that's what needs to happen. Let's first make sure we understand clearly from Acts what scripture teaches about baptism and regeneration. And that would be this. The water baptism is the sign and symbol of the inward cleansing of the heart by the blood of Jesus Christ. We could tease that out. We could say the outward sign of baptism is a sign of the fact that you've been inwardly baptized by the Holy Spirit. Where's the text for this? Well, Titus chapter 3 verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there's the Holy Spirit doing the work of saving grace in the terms of washing that baptism symbolizes. How about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood... May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That is, water baptism signifies the cleansing of the heart by the blood of Jesus Christ. But notice, also, baptism signifies being buried. That's why we say when we baptize someone, that they are buried in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Where do we get that text? Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Scripture nowhere teaches that some Christians have more of the Holy Spirit and some Christians have less of the Holy Spirit. That somehow some of us have a a next tier, a next level of spiritual power that's unavailable to the rest of the lower tier Christians, whomever those might be. What scripture does teach is that, this, is that our sin, that our unrepentance can diminish the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the problem in that case isn't the Spirit. It's our unfaithfulness to the Spirit. So what do we do with Acts chapter 8 verse 16? 
Well, I think there are two options. And I would submit to you that neither one of these are clearly, explicitly stated in the text. So what we must recognize is that God certainly knows what he's doing and whatever he's doing here is right and how he's doing it. But we also have to recognize that the early church and how God worked in order to rapidly advance the gospel and build the church was unique in Acts. He's doing unique things. So here's two options for you. And I hold to one of them, and both of these were offered by I. Howard Marshall in his commentary on the book of Acts. Here's here's the first option. The Holy Spirit was not given to these saved believers... In order that upon Peter and John's arrival and ministry among them, the Samaritans might recognize, might be recognized as fully incorporated into the community of the Jerusalem Christian Church. Let me just tease that out a bit. Remember, we've, we've got the gospel being offered to Jews first and then the Greek. We have the gospel going from Samaria and it's like ripples on a pond spreading out. And we've reached now Samaria, a group of people absolutely despised by the Jews. And I. Howard Marshall is suggesting that the Holy Spirit had not come in order that when Peter and John come, there's this signifying that though different in nationality and likes and dislikes and animosity against one another, in Christ... They're one. There's a unity there. That's his first option. The second option is this. The Holy Spirit had not come because they hadn't actually been saved yet. Well, option two definitely has some holes to it. If they weren't saved, Peter and John wouldn't have prayed for them. They would have preached to them. And certainly prayer is in conjunction with that, but they would have preached to them. Likewise, the text does not indicate that their faith was defective but rather that they had not received the Holy Spirit. I agree with Mr. Marshall. I think number one is the reason for why and why I would submit to you the most sensible interpretation of Acts 8.16. Something specifically done in the early church to symbolize for us and for them as well a uniting under Christ. We don't see any other indication that this happens anywhere else and we're left with having to figure it out when the clear teaching of Scripture is Baptism of the Holy Spirit first, that's the work of regeneration saving grace, followed by water baptism in order to outwardly indicate to everybody of what has happened inwardly. I submit that to you, you think about it and work through it as you will. Irregardless though, what happens with Simon's response? The Holy Spirit falls upon them, they receive the Holy Spirit. Notice what Simon does in verse 18. The Spirit was, was given through the laying on in the apostles' hands, and he offered them money. Now, in a sense, he's doing what he knows. This is what magicians and sorcerers do, right? It's all about the almighty dollar. Follow the money, if you will. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, I, it's important for us as we think about gospel preachers to ask the question and why Paul tells Timothy as well in Titus that one of the qualifications is how a pastor handles money. Follow the money. It tells you quite a bit. What do they do with it? Uh, do they have a nice house? Well, nothing's wrong with having a nice house. Uh, it might be a bit much to buy a Lamborghini though. 
rabbit trail here. But if you want to find, if you're not on Instagram, I'm not. But if you want, there's a guy who is currently just taking pictures, using the pictures of internet, on the internet, of gospel preachers. And he zooms in and he looks at their shoes. And then he posts how much those shoes are for. The cheapest one I've seen is 600 bucks a pair. Most expensive is 3,500 bucks a pair to wear on a Sunday morning. Follow the money. Do with it as you will. But this is what the man's doing. Simon's doing. Hey, this is how we do it. I want your power because that advances things, right? The corruption of so many via money. It's been said before that money turns up the heat on whatever's already there. One can do nothing to purchase the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ and the blessings that abound in Christ. And yet it's as if Simon is trying to buy it, buy the power of the Holy Spirit. Give me this power, he says, verse 19, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. The thought of being able to buy a relationship with God. The thought that one can do anything at all to be made right or more right with God. And yet Christ has done all the work for the obtaining of saving grace. And this is one of the reasons why we say it's the free gift of salvation. It is, it is a gift. It is free. It is not earned. It's received. And so some would say, well, I, I can't take the gift. I, I, I need to first get my house in order. And what they mean by that is, yeah, I've got to stop sleeping around. I've got to stop doing the things that I know I shouldn't be doing. I've got to stop cussing. I've got to stop speeding or whatever else that anyone wants to offer. But what they say is, I've got to stop all these things and then I will be worthy enough to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The free gift of Christ is offered to sinners, not better sinners or worse sinners. But sinners, all being born, are born in sin. Thus you should know, and I implore you today, we don't wait to come to Christ. See Christ dying on the cross for sinners like yourself. See Christ taking the punishment of your sin for sinners like yourself. Place your trust in Christ to save you from your sin and God's wrathful punishment upon sinners and be saved. You can't buy it. You'll never be able to earn it. In fact, today, you're... You're as qualified to accept the free gift of Christ as you will be any other day. There's not a better day for you. That's why the scripture says today is the day of salvation. You're not, you're not, you're not more ready tomorrow. You're not a better sinner tomorrow. But Christ is being offered. Can't buy it. Simon tries. Notice verse 20, Peter's response. It seems uh, a bit strong. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Die, you sinner. (laughs) Go to hell. Peter, I know you're known for bold proclamations, but 
tone it down. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you were in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Our politically correct, tainted understanding of evangelism, evangelicalism, uh, would seem to have issue with this statement. How dare Peter judge the heart of Simon? He's a new believer, Peter. Go easy on him. Give him a little grace. Give him more grace. We need to be very careful here not to overlay the text and the difficult nature of this interaction between Peter and Simon with what we believe should be added in order to make the text comfortable. It's an uncomfortable text. It's meant to be so. Is Simon converted under Philip or is he a false convert? Because it says in verse 13 that he believed and yet Peter's making the argument in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness in the bond of iniquity. It's as if Luke is writing to the early church to let them know that false converts are a reality within the church. I think Peter is making it clear to everyone within the church at that time. In fact, Simon, in his response, seems to indicate that there may have been, this may have been a, a public rebuke. But I think he's making it clear that Solomon, uh, Simon is a false convert. I think there's two reasons for that. One is, believing doesn't mean receiving. Baptism does not save one. He was baptized, but that doesn't mean he's saved. Baptism follows conversion. It does not make conversion. You could almost maybe get in the midst of Peter's brain and and hear him or watch him think about Christ in preaching through Mark chapter 4 verse 18 when he comes in the parable of the sower and he's talking about seed that is sown on thorny ground and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. That's what's happening here. Another reason why I don't think Simon is a true convert, but is actually a false convert, is notice what Peter says, you are in the bond of iniquity. Brothers and sisters, if you're saved, Christ has freed you from the bond of iniquity. You're set free. John chapter 8 verse 36, so if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Romans 8 verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. For those in Christ who have been set free from the bond of iniquity. And yet here, Peter is telling this man he's not been set free from it. There are There is the reality of false converts. Uh, those who sit on the pew Sunday after Sunday, who are amazed at the gospel, who believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, maybe have walked an aisle, baptized, and yet as time 
goes on, it bears out that they're not in Christ. It's the reality of the church. It, it happens. What do we do with those who claim to be and yet show after a period of time, we don't know the time distance here, but the period of time that they're not in Christ? Well, you do exactly what Peter did. You call them to repent and trust Christ. You don't get entangled. Well, uh, maybe, maybe. No, just, just ask the question. Are you actually saved? There's no fruit here. Verse 25, notice how they respond. And this is the way we should respond. Uh, Peter and John testify to the work of Christ. They take these new converts in Samaria, a new people group, and they teach them the word of God. They're fulfilling the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's oftentimes where we stop. But the entirety of the command is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And that's what they do. They open the scriptures and they teach them. Christ here is then offered to the Samaritans. As they go back to Jerusalem, they preach the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Christ here is seen clearly as the more powerful force. Uh, He's seen clearly as when Christ saves, uh, there's no sliding back. A person is saved entirely. They're set free from the law of sin and grace. Excuse me, set free from the law of sin and death. But Christ is is offered to, to all. Here, he's offered to the Samaritans. He's already been offered to the Jews. This is why we should all, the Christians should always have a, a heart for international missions. That we would offer the gospel, offer Christ to the Chinese, to the Hispanic, to the male, to the female, to sinners, to homosexuals, to adult, uh, adulterers, to liars, murderers, rapists, drug addicts, disobedient, disrespectful. We offer Christ to everyone. And it is the wonder of the church. It is, it is the wonder of the power of Christ breaking down long-held beliefs, breaking down long-held addictions, convictions, breaking apart long-held prejudices and hate, and, and bringing about a new community. That's the wonder of the church. You know, when's the last time you paused and thought, you know, brother or sister so-and-so to my right, left, front, back... They don't look like me. They don't talk like me. They don't do what I do. They don't like what I like. They don't sing like I sing. They don't drive like I drive. They don't drive what I drive. Why do I like these people? Why do I love these people? Why would I help these people? Who are these people? This is the wonder of the Christian church. This is the wonder of the power of Christ. Currently in our in churches today in America, there's this huge press now for where does one stand on men's and women's issues? Where does one stand on racial issues? Can I submit to you that the gospel solves all those problems? There's nothing else that's going to solve that problem other than the work of Christ because that's what Christ does is he smashes all this stuff that makes us different and he brings us one in Christ. He has the power to do so. And if you do not know him, I would plead with you that today is the day 
to put your trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Stop. Stop trying to figure out a way to earn your way to God, to be more right with God. Trust Christ to be the perfection that you will never be able to be. It's simple. He offers you and all that he has done, his perfection, his forgiveness found upon the cross, his hope in the resurrection, and you just must believe. It's as simple as it possibly can come. How prideful do we have to be to reject the most simplest and yet most eternal and glorious of all offers? And then you get to see. You get to be a part of this early church. You get to see the wonders. You get to see the amazing things. You get to see the joy. And no, it may not be in rabbits coming out of hats. But there's nothing better than seeing a person being changed to be more like Christ. To watch their language go from this to being this. To watch their treatment of people from going from here to there. It's addicting to see it happen. And I submit to you, it's all because of the power of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are overjoyed to be reminded of the eternal work of Jesus Christ that saves us from all of our sin. The holding power of your grace to not let us go and swing back. And yet also the grace that is declaring That in Christ alone can one be saved. And there's no other way. There's no purchasing power that can buy saving grace. That can buy the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And may we not in any way, shape, or form shirk from in a straightforward manner with great love for the lost proclaiming to them You're in the bond of iniquity. You're in bondage to sin and yet Christ can set you free. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had this morning to sing, to open your word, to pray. As we close and we now begin a new part of our service and that is the ministering to one another, the encouragement to one another. Help us. Strengthen our church during this time. Father, I would ask that something I've said this morning, that the word of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be, have been acceptable and pleasing in your sight, that you would have used something said to strengthen the hearts of those here this morning. Help us this week. Turn our eyes to Jesus. Help us to look full in his wonderful face that the things of earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. May your name be praised. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.